if you watch The Daily Show, the content really was not that much different than the content of the network news. Obviously, it was presented in a humorous form. So, you know, those are developments that I've noticed over the years that I want to dig into a bit deeper in this course. From Jon Stewart to Taylor Swift, there's no denying that popular culture and celebrity influence the media, often acting as both the message and the messenger of the news. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Richard Lee is the executive director of the Gendoli Institute and a professor in the School of Communication at St. Bonaventure University. I had a great time talking to him in 2022 about how hybrid journalism was used to bring academic expertise to the masses during the pandemic. So we decided to have him back on to discuss a new course he is teaching on pop culture and media. Richard, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for your interest in my work. Appreciate it. (laughs) You know all cards on the table. Amber Healy, who does our web stories every week, does the write-up and and sort of manages the newsletter, is a graduate of St. Bonaventure, and I think she originally pitched you for the hybrid thing. That is correct, you know, and actually after that, I think I met her. There was an alumni event on campus, so we got to meet her. Exactly. That's where I was going to go with it. She said that you came up to her, and she was quite tickled. Anywho, usually I start these things asking people how they got into journalism and everything, but, you know, I think I did that last time. I'm sure I did that last time. But, you know, tell me a little bit uh, what's been going on in St. Bonaventure. You know, we spoke in 2022. How are things at the School of Communication? We're doing, you know, quite well. Like, we're happy that our enrollment seems to be increasing, which is contrary to trends we're seeing in a lot of other places. We were probably just in the initial stages of starting a graduate program in digital sports journalism and digital journalism, and that's really taken off. So we've always been kind of heavy on the sports journalism side, so that has really kind of taken off. But overall, it's it's an exciting time to teach journalism, and, you know, we're, we're growing in, we hope to start some construction on building renovations, so we'll have a, you know, upgraded facility in a few years, so we're all excited to do that. Well, that's great. So let's get into this new class that you're teaching on pop culture and media. How did this come about? Well, it's something that I've always had an interest in. My career took kind of an unusual trajectory where, as a journalist, I covered rock and roll for a few years, but I settled in covering government and politics. And, you know, on the surface, it would appear that there's no connection between the two. But over the years, I've seen a growing influence of pop culture on politics, on public policy. And I had done some studies on it. And even though I had left my job, it was a long time ago when I covered rock and roll, that always stuck with me. And I always look for ways to connect the two. So I would uh, be remiss if I did not ask, who are you writing or covering uh, rock and roll for? I was working for uh, a news magazine in New Jersey called the Aquarian Weekly. And it was during the early 1980s. And in a lot of ways, it was a dream job. I got paid to go to concerts. I got free music. That was when music was on vinyl. UPS used to drop off a box of albums at my condo every day. And I got to speak with you know, a lot of the people who were you know, making you know, music back then. What happened was the perks were great. The salary was not. You know, we had a daughter, we bought a condo, and I started freelancing for my local daily. One thing led to another, went from freelancing to part-time to full-time, and as I said, I settled in on covering government and politics. 
Okay. I suppose, I guess that's turned out to be more lucrative than just writing about rock music. So yeah, I understand you have this background and this interest in it. Did you just sort of pitch this class to the school or is this something that, that came out of you know discussions going on with the other professors at the school? It was something that, that I pitched. You know, we plan a semester ahead. So right now, you know, we're speaking in January. We're already talking about the fall semester. So I guess it was, you know, six months or so ago when we were doing the schedule for the spring semester. And I more or less had taught the same group of classes every semester, which I really enjoy. But when the, we get an email saying, what would you like to teach? What days and times? And they try to accommodate us. And I wrote back and I said, well, I've been teaching these classes. I enjoy doing them. But would it be possible for me to teach what we call a special topics course, which is something which is not in a catalog, you propose it, and it's kind of a trial sort of course. We may never teach it again, we may pick up on it. And our, our dean, Aaron Chimble, is always receptive to new ideas, and he said, you know, that would be fine, what's the idea? And I did a really short outline, and, you know, they said, go with it. So that's, you know, how the idea came about. So It's fascinating as digital technology sort of came to rise and movement of video and audio to digital platforms and print also sort of migrating to digital. Do you think the relationship between news and, you know, pop culture, has that changed substantially since when you were covering rock in the early 80s? I mean, the relationship between, I guess, the artist and the and the audience? What I've seen that that's changed, maybe not so much on the entertainment side, but that people are getting news through entertainment. And I'll give you two examples that I had talked about in my classes, and one of the reasons for proposing this class was to maybe spend some more time on these topics. One is, you, know, you re may remember when Bill Clinton went on the Arsenio Hall show during the 1992 campaign, and now we see politicians, elected officials on talk shows all the time. But back then, if you were running for president, you went on Meet the Press, you went on Face the Nation, you didn't go on Arsenio Hall and play the saxophone with the band. And I think that opened the door to politicians, you know, getting their message out where they're not going through the scrutiny of seasoned reporters. They're sitting down, having a comfortable conversation with a talk show host. And sometime in the 2000s, there were a series of academic studies that showed that Young people, not surprisingly, were not, you know, watching network news and traditional news outlets, but they were watching comedy shows like Colbert and The Daily Show, which Jon Stewart was hosting at the time. And one of the researchers did a content analysis and found that if you watch The Daily Show, the content really was not that much different than the content of the network news. Obviously, it was presented in a humorous form. So, you know, those are developments that I've noticed over the years that I want to dig into a bit deeper in this course. That's interesting. I was going to say John Stewart. I, I think he, you know, he famously went on, who was that? Was it Tucker Carlson? Yeah, it was and Crossfire. And in fact, yeah, that's a video that I usually show to my students, even though it was, I think, from 2004. It's still an interesting exchange. And he's chiding them because he goes on after puppets that, right. you know, that they're supposed to be delivering the news, but you know, he's suddenly doing that. And this is not something that's changed a lot. Although, just to go back in time a little bit, one of the things I thought you were going to mention was Richard Nixon on Laugh-In. You know, the politician you would least expect to be on, on Laugh-In, saying sock it to me. That's somebody who's using, like Bill Clinton, he's using popular media, popular culture to maybe send out a different message, reach a different audience. 
you know, what do you think about that? Yeah, exactly. I think reaching a big different audience is, you know, a key to that. The people who watch Laugh-In, who watched Arsenio Hall, who are watching Stephen Colbert and Jimmy Fallon today are probably not the people who follow politics that closely. Maybe some of them are, but, you know, that's a way for those folks to learn a little bit more about what's going on, and that's a way for them to see some of these, you know, politicians or elected officials in different settings. Yeah, sort of an entree into, like, introducing them to those ideas and then having them have some sort of relationship to an issue or a, a candidate or whatever, you know, without forcing them to sit down and watch the news. How has that changed the news, though? You know, is media adopting those sort of looks and, and presentations or, you know, what, what's going on? I think to a certain degree the media is adapting, but I think what's happening is the voters, the public is less informed about where the candidates stand on the issues. To the benefit, and I worked on the other side of the business for a while in government and PR jobs, and this sort of opportunity didn't exist back then. But, you know, if you can put your candidate sitting on a couch, talking with someone, talking about their family, their kids, you know, their favorite television shows, whatever, they're going to be a lot more comfortable doing that than they are standing in front of a bank of reporters. But the bank of reporters are probably going to be asking the questions about issues, about policy positions that you really need to know in order to make an informed choice at the voting booth. You know, I know you mentioned The Daily Show and was it last week tonight? But if you look at something like Saturday Night Live, which has routinely brought in politicians or public figures, celebrities and mocked them in sort of a, you know, a satire way. But they're also mocking with their portrayal of Donald Trump aspects of his White House, his staff. That becomes the fuel for satire. Is satire part of this? A relationship between pop media and media? Yeah, satire is a, a way to get information out to the public. I'm thinking, um, since you mentioned Saturday Night Live, there was one of their cold openings after one of the Republican debates for in the presidential race. And, you know, the candidates were out there and they kind of, you know, did some parodies about what really happened. And then they all froze and the character, the actor playing Donald Trump came out and pretty much said, you know, this is a joke. None of these people have a chance of getting the nomination, which is something we all know, but you couldn't get somebody to come right out and say that in a news story. So they were getting that information out there. And I don't want to turn this conversation into a conversation about Trump, but he's somebody who comes from television. He started with a certain image, which he was able to create familiarity with an audience. They knew him as the guy who hosted that one show who, you know, appeared on Howard Stern and things like that. And so he was able to, you know, leverage that type of celebrity, you know, into a political career. Again, is that another type of thing of this relationship, you know, taking advantage of media, the popular culture? Is it changing the way politics is is executed? Yeah, I think, you know, we don't see it in every elected official. There was a article which I had, you know, my students in this new class read about Nancy Mace, who's a congresswoman, I believe, from South Carolina. And the article was just about all the things she does to get attention, to get herself noticed, which, you know, you can't falter for, but just the extent to which she was doing that. And I think she's not the only one. It used to be if you went to Congress, 
in order to get a position of power and in, in order to get some influence, you know, you'd be there longer, you'd be there, you know, build up seniority. But it almost seems now like the people who make the best use of social media and messaging are the ones that we, you know, read about. Yeah. And quite often they're the ones who go into committee hearings or whatever and they want to create a certain, you know, sound clip or a certain right. look and then they're going to be able to, to push out on social media. Since we're talking about social media, where does sort of social media fit in this relationship between pop culture and the media? Well, well, social media is kind of, in a way, it enables elected officials, government, whoever, to bypass the scrutiny of the media, which is similar to what we were talking about with the talk show format, that you, know, you don't have to put out a press release and hope you know, reporters come and, you know, pick it up or come to your press conference, you know, you can put your information right on X, on Facebook, Instagram, and you can put it there exactly the way you want it with the spin that you want. So it's given those folks, the folks who are not journalists, you know, more power, more influence. We're talking, you know, mid to late January, but you've already had a class or two. We just finished the second week of the semester. Okay. So what type of research did you do to, to put together a curriculum for this class? What are you talking to the students about? Well, it, it was challenging. More cha- I mean, I was really looking forward, and I am looking forward to the class, but as I started to think about it, there was just so much you know, to get in there. So I, I tried to pare it down a bit. I'm going to be talking about events that I remember you know, I think we discussed protest music and some of the things that happened in the 60s, but I don't want to just make it a course about that era. But I want to use that time to lay the foundation. What I've done the first week or two is just talk about some of the concepts underlying the course, which are you know, some of the concepts we've been talking about, but how what got me into this was doing some research on protest music and how some of the lyrics were providing information that wasn't being reported. If you wanted to learn certain things about the Vietnam War. You know, there was more accurate information, more detailed information in these songs. And I wanted to kind of carry that forward to today and, you know, maybe explore with the students, is that happening, you know, today in other platforms? Especially a lot of people are, you know, they look at social media, they look at music trends and the way people react to influences and things like that. But one of the strengths, I guess, of the the music in the 60s was that it sort of not only sort of was presenting a different point of view, it was also sort of capturing the cultural zeitgeist of the moment so that through the music, a lot of the issues were identified and explained, which, you know, maybe that's not that much different than, you know, what John Stewart was doing, where, you know, we're going to have poked fun at this thing, but actually there's a really serious story behind it. Yeah, I mean, the 60s, early 70s were, you know, a tumultuous time, you know, that country was going through, as you said, a lot of societal, cultural changes, and the music was part of that. And, you know, we're in a tumultuous time as well, you know, right now. And one of the things that, like, I want to do in the class is, you know, tell them about things that I experienced and say, who's doing that today? You know, who are the Phil Oaks and Pete Seegers of today? And maybe it's John Stewart. Maybe it's, you know, the students are more up on current pop culture than I am. So I'm going to be looking to them for ideas. I had an editor at one point, this is early 2000s, and he was a an older rock fan. And he used to talk about, well, you know, when things get so bad, that's when the folk music is going to come back. And I kept thinking it's not going to be folk music. It's going to be something else. It's going to be hip hop or whatever. 
whoever's driving the, the popular culture at the moment, as they get older, it becomes more enshrined. Artists who were big in the 60s are not, <laughs> were not, are not necessarily glorified at the same level or understood at the same level because it's the popular culture. It's the minute. I mean, what's your sense of what the the students who signed up for your course and have been to these, you know, first couple of classes, you know, what's their sense of their relationship with popular media? The class is online, so most of my interaction with them has been, you know, through assignments that are submitting there. Simon, I did this week because you know, I said we we started right out. We did something on Taylor Swift. I figured if I'm teaching a pop culture course in 2024, and I didn't want to start right away with something that happened in the 60s, and the timing worked well because you know the Kansas City Chiefs played the Buffalo Bills that first week, so there's even more Taylor Swift news in our area. So I'm not sure if they know quite what to make of it because you know maybe this relationship that we see between pop culture and the media and public policy you know, is new to us, but to someone who's 18 or 19, this is their world. This is the way it's always been. And I mean, there's an assignment which they're working on now where I gave them links to four protest songs from the 60s. I asked every, you know, to pick one and, and write about it. So it's a little too early to see what direction they're going in, but you know, that would give me some sense of, of where they're at. So you said you kind of had to sort of pare down and to focus. What did you end up doing? Did you like identify these are the touch points I want to get to through this semester? Yeah, it was a process where I started out, as I said, oh, I want to talk about topics that I've broached in my other courses, like, you know, Clinton on Arsenio, what that happened, some of these studies that showed, you know, young people are getting their information through news. And then I decided I'm just going to kind of explain those concepts at the beginning of the course, and we're going to see how they relate to different topics. So I tried to relate or schedule it, arrange it a lot around dates, like the, when the Grammys take place, we're going to look at what songs are, are nominated. I did an op-ed a few years ago, what the best song nominees tell us about America. And I'm going to share that op-ed. I'm going to ask the students to look at, you know, the seven or eight songs, however there are, that were nominated for best song and see if what they, you know, get out of that. We're going to do that same thing with the Oscars. There's a Bob Marley movie coming out mid-February, so that week we'll look at reggae. With all my courses, I, I take a look ahead at the start of the semester, actually before the start of the semester, to see what might be coming up and what we can connect to in the way of course topics. And that's nice because you, you leave yourself open for, you know, something big happens a few days before the class. You can say, what do you think this means? How does this fit in with the things we've been talking about in this class? I was going to say students really like that. My other class, I teach a course on campaigns every fall and one a media democracy class every spring. The format is similar. And I tell them at the beginning, this is your syllabus, this is the schedule, but it could change. And I think they really like the fact that if something happens in the news, I'm not going to say, well, this is what we plan. We're going to study X this week. Just to give you a quick example, I guess two years ago in the media and democracy, I didn't have the war in Ukraine on the syllabus because it hadn't started. But it would have been ridiculous to do that course and not talk about the war and how it was being covered. So we scrapped some of the topics I was going to do and spent some time looking at the coverage of the war. Are you dressing or discussing the idea of manipulation? Somebody using popular culture in a way to move the political scale, you know, meter or <laughs> getting people to uh, purchase whatever. Yeah, I guess I, I never thought of it in terms of manipulation. It's more influence. You know, we're going to look at, you know, how 
pop culture has that impact. But, you know, I think there certainly are people out there who are looking for ways to hop on the bandwagon and make use of that for those purposes. I mean, are you talking at all about the perception aspect of it? You know, are they aware that quite often, if not always, they're being fed a, a manufactured image or information? Yeah, I think they are. I think, you know, students, young folks are a bit more savvy than, you know, sometimes people give them credit for. And, you know, sometimes I'll be pleasantly surprised when I put something out there and maybe it's something that I didn't even notice, but, you know, they do. Okay. And so as you're looking ahead through the semester, what are you, what are you hoping that the students take away from this? I'm hoping that, you know, they realize that pop culture is a way in their generation, in their lifetimes, where that's going to have a, a lot of influence on public policy, on who gets in office and what they do while they're there. And I just want them to understand, you know, a number of the items that we talked about. It's news literacy. We just had News Literacy Week that they take everything with a grain of salt. And, you know, that just because a singer or an actor that they're big fans of says, you know, this politician, this candidate is great. I'm going to vote for him or her. Don't take their word for it. You know, do the research yourself. In the School of Communication, is that one of the th sort of things that the faculty tries to do is to, you know, sort of help them develop a sense of skepticism and things to look out for to become more media literate? Yeah, and that's, you know, nothing new. I mean, I think it's probably more of a challenge today, but, you know, it's the old saying, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. And, you know, it's nice because the students haven't heard that. And, you know, so it usually gets a chuckle out of them what they think about it. You know, you always have to be skeptical, you know, whether it was news reported a number of years ago or today. But, you know, today it's just amazing and disturbing what people can do. I was, I was reading an article yesterday in the New York Times about something I never heard of, obituary pirates, where oh somebody, God. yeah, apparently if somebody's in an accident and people start, Googling, you know, family members start Googling to find out what happened, there's somebody in India who tracks that and starts putting out stories that are fake just to get web traffic and somehow makes money off of it. But it's a scary world we're living in. I mean, the internet's great. It's given us a lot of opportunities, information to share, but it's also a, a dangerous tool. Are you at all concerned, you know, you and I are older gentlemen, are you concerned that, you know, as you teach this stuff, that, you know, it could very easily turn into, before the internet, this is the way things are done, and are you really sort of conscious, you know, focusing things that this is the sort of the reality of today's media, even though these other things have happened, they're still here, but they're being presented in different ways, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I try to make the points that in some ways journalism hasn't changed, but obviously through technology, the way people get news, the way news is disseminated, you know, has changed. And I do talk a little bit about what news used to be like with the three networks, but I don't want to get too nostalgic about it or, or say it was ideal back then. No, because it wasn't. I mean, yeah. it's, it was simpler. I think it was simpler. We didn't have to think about, you know, where we wanted to get our search, you know, and trusted Walter Conkright, apparently. But people aren't, people don't have a lot of time. So even if they do turn to news sources, usually it's just like a little bite that they can sort of digest to keep themselves sort of on track or whatever the thing is. Anyway, as I have shown by the wandering nature of my questions today, <laughs> we could go on and on with this. You know, Richard, thanks for coming on the podcast. This sounds like a really fascinating class. Maybe I'll check in with you 
at the end of the semester and see where you you end up at. That would be great because, as I said, it's kind of uncharted territory for me, and <laughs> I'd be happy to talk about where we ended up. So. You're going to be like, no, I'm never going to do that again, <laughs> you hope. All right, well, good luck. Thanks for coming to the podcast. Okay, thanks, Michael. Enjoyed it. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Belefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.